Amen. Our living hope. Am I on? Hello, hello. We're going to start out reading the good news. We're going to read the Scripture for today. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Amen. You may be seated. Yes, children. You may go. Have a good time. We're just going to dive right in this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray first. We're going to ask for God's help. Father, we just thank You so much for the good news, for the announcement that Jesus is alive, that death has been defeated, that sins have been forgiven, that Satan has been crushed. And we just celebrate that. I ask, Holy Spirit, that You would come today, that You would just open our eyes afresh. If any here does not know the good news, I pray that You would open their eyes to see it and to believe it, to celebrate it. For all of us, I pray that You would reawaken us to the truth of the Gospel, that Jesus is indeed alive. We thank You, King. Would You come with authority today? In Jesus' name, Amen. So we live in a world that is starved for wonder. Very little astonishes us anymore. Cynicism marks us. It marks our politics. Outrage is our daily diet. We have mass shootings, war, and anger that dominate our news channels and our social media feeds. We question reality. We are driven by our feelings. We stare at the glow of screens. We live by algorithms. We numb out with medications and Netflix. We soothe with temporary consumer fixes instead of long-term commitments and meaning. We look to scientific explanations for a why when it's not meant for such weight. We make core identity out of sex, gender, race, and more. A world that desperately grasps for hope but finds it slippery, finds it impermanent. Trauma is too thick, suffering, suffocating. We crave hope. We want wonder. We look for astonishment. But the stories that our culture lives by do not satisfy our longings. Sadly, even in our churches, Christian churches, the hopeful message gets crowded out by other priorities. Instead of preaching the grace of God found in the person of Jesus alone, we preach the law. We preach morals as a way of self-salvation. Christianity as a way to a better life. Instead of preaching Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, 
We act as if a president is going to save the country. Instead of following Scripture in Jesus, wherever He leads, we bank our hopes, our theological interpretations on fallen men, on celebrity pastors. We replace, if not in our confessions of faith, in our daily attitudes, something else as more important. Something else of first importance other than the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. And so this day, Easter Sunday, is a reminder for us, for all of us, for the churches, the people that bear the good news of Jesus to get their priorities straight, to announce to the world the good news of what Jesus has done in the person of Jesus Christ. So in a world of cynicism and hopelessness, we have a message of tangible, of permanent hope that is fixed on a person, not a philosophy, not a new spirituality, not an ideology. We have good news, not good advice. We have an announcement. We are witnesses in a line of witnesses that stretches back to the witness of women at an empty tomb of a Nazarene Jewish man crucified in the first century. That's what we are witnesses of. We don't become, as it has been said, more spiritual by becoming less human. We become whole by trusting the historical event that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that He was buried all the way totally dead and that He was raised according to the Scriptures. That is our banner. That is what we believe. That is what we offer to the world. We rely on this true story of hope, wonder, and astonishment that Jesus Christ is alive. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the story again. The last several weeks we've been looking at the story of Jesus, particularly through the Gospel of Mark. And I've kind of talked about how the Bible is a story. I've mentioned how sometimes we need to read it as fiction, not because it's not true, but because it's a whole story from beginning to end. There's all kinds of allusions, prophecies, words that come alive in newness, a story that is being told. And now it's kind of like a movie too where there's twists I'm the kind of guy that likes movies with twists. Okay? The Gospel is full of twists. They weren't expecting the Messiah to die. What's the twist? He died. That that's the way He defeated Satan's sin and death. And then, I even like more movies with a double twist. You get the one halfway through or so, then you get the other that just flabbergasts you. You know what I mean? Like that second twist that just leaves you stunned. And that's what this story is. That Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. That He actually did what He said He was going to do. And the proof is He's alive. And He reigns. So, Mark chapter 16 is where we're going to be. Just the first eight verses. I'll read it whole and then we'll just kind of go, go through it. And listen to the story. Sixteen verse one. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white, in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him, just as He told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, 
today for us today. It's God's word. That's the story. That's why we are here today. So I want to look at some A's today. Some A's. Alright? First point. Notice the absence of Jesus' male disciples. Just notice it. The male disciples are not there. The dudes are gone. Mark 14, 50. You want to flip around? I might bounce around a little bit too. I want you to see this. It's not me telling it. I want you to see it in the Scriptures. Mark 14, verse 50. This is right after the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And look at that little verse. And they all left Him and fled. Jesus going to the reason why He came and the disciples are out of here. You get that weird voice, that weird verse, and a young man followed Him with nothing but a linen cloth about His body and they seized Him, but He left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Everybody is gone. Get out of here. The men aren't there. But we find in Mark's Gospel that the women are there. There's a shift. Verse 15, excuse me, chapter 15, verses 40 to 41. There were also women looking on from a distance. This is right after his death, right after he utters with a loud cry. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So the women are there, they're at the cross. The women are there, they're at the burial. Look at the next set of verses. We have Joseph of Arimathea, who goes as a rich man and gets the body and buries him in a tomb. Look at verse 46. Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, that's the body of Jesus, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And notice too, the looking on from a distance, that they saw this. They're witnesses to this. You could go ask them. There's evidence. He was on the cross. He was buried. And so here, again, in verse 1 of chapter 16, here they are. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So number two, what do we have here? We have average women. Just average women. At least two of them, mainly average. I'm just kind of struck by the ordinariness of the women, at least in the last two mentioned. We don't know hardly anything about them, except that they were there. And of course, that itself is good news. It's the most important thing about them. Not something that they did, but that they're attached to Jesus and what He has done. They're simply there. What do we know about them? They're Salome. We don't know much about her. She's there. There's Mary. We know Mary, the mother of James. This is not Mary as in Jesus' mother. But Mary and Salome, known for all of history, the ones who were, got to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Ordinary. Didn't necessarily accomplish a whole lot. Average, everyday women. Now, Mary Magdalene has a bit of a different story. Not quite as average. Because we know that she, from other verses in other Gospels, was possessed by demons. But she also is known for something that Jesus had done for her. Not something that she was great at, that she was awesome at, that she was possessed by demons, that Jesus had authority and power over Satan and delivered her from demonic oppression. There is a verse that talk about how some of the women provided out of their means, so maybe she was a little more than average. She might have been one that was helping support Jesus. But so that's who is there, known for what Jesus had done for them. Every day, ordinary. Number three, they're doing just an average activity. 
in that day just an average activity of what a woman would have done. They are going to anoint someone for burial. Going to anoint a dead person. Jesus. You see that again in the first verse. So that they might go and anoint Him. And so they're going to the tomb not because they are expecting Him to be alive, but because they know He's dead. The expectation is not Jesus is going to get out of the grave. He did say it. He said it several times, but that's not their expectation at all. It's grief. It's sadness. We're going to do what we do when people die. We anoint them for burial. And so we need to really feel the Jewishness of the story. Again, get out of our century and get into theirs. One, it was the Sabbath. The Sabbath is over. Friday is sundown. Saturday sundown. What do they do? They rest. Can't go anoint bodies during that time. So it's afterward. And then what do they do as Jewish women? They're going to go anoint with spices. So here's one commentator, again, to help us feel the context. Bodies were normally anointed with oil, then rinsed with water before burial. But because Jesus had died on Friday, just before the Sabbath began, at sundown around 6 p.m., this anointing had to be postponed. Men were allowed to dress only men for burial, but women could dress men or women. Spices may not have been used for everyone, but were often used for the bodies of special persons, like Herod. They reduced the immediate stench of rapid decomposition in the hot Mediterranean days. After one day and two nights, the women could expect that the body would already stink. But Jerusalem is over 2,000 feet above sea level and is cool enough in April that in a sealed tomb, the body would have still been approachable. But the point is, it would have started to smell. Again, you have to feel this. You have to know this. Jesus is dead. He is starting to smell. They're going to anoint Him with spices, as would have been their tradition. So very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they go to the tomb. And so, we know that Jesus said He would rise, but they don't go with that expectation. They're going to do what women do society. But also, the expectation of their culture, the Jewish expectation, the the stories that they would have believed about Messiah and about God and about what God had done with their fathers in the Old Testament. Their expectation was that there would be a resurrection and there were differences on this. We know about Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees did. There's debates about that in the Gospels. But generally, there was a Jewish expectation of resurrection. But you know when that was going to happen? At the very end of time. There would be a general resurrection for everyone. So there was an expectation, but not that one person was going to get up out of the grave and rise. The general expectation was at the end of time, then resurrection may happen. N.T. Wright, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he talks about what their, the stories that they would have believed that would have been going on in their minds. Again, you've got to tap into what is happening in their minds here. It's unexpected. This is right. It remains the case that resurrection in the world of Second Temple Judaism, you go, what in the world is that? So the temple was rebuilt again. Remember that? So this is like 500 years before Jesus or so. Okay? So there's the second temple. There's a general idea that about resurrection. Back to right. Was about the restoration of Israel on the one hand and a newly embodied life of all of Yahweh's people on the other with close connections between the two. And it was thought of as the great event that Yahweh would accomplish at the very end of the present age. The event which would constitute the age to come. All of this was concentrated for many Jews in the stories of the righteous martyrs, those who had suffered and died for Yahweh and Torah. Because Yahweh was the Creator, because He was a God of justice, the martyrs would be raised. Israel as a whole would be vindicated. But nobody imagined that any individuals had already been raised or would be raised in advance of the great last day. There were no traditions about prophets being raised to new bodily life. The closest we come to that is Elijah who had gone bodily to heaven and would return to herald the new age. There are no traditions about a Messiah 
being raised to life. Most Jews of this period hoped for resurrection. Many Jews of this period hoped for a Messiah. But nobody put those two hopes together until the early Christians did so. This is important. The reason why it's important is because, again, it's not like sometimes we modern people with what I've said before, C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, think, oh, well, we now, we now know that, that dead people don't rise from the dead. Okay? That was not their expectation. They did have a hope, but it was all in the future when everybody would, would come to life, at least the ones who had trusted God with hope. And so, they do not go to the tomb with expectation of Jesus coming alive. What again do we see here? Number four, average worries. Okay? Average worries. Verse three, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Well, that's an interesting thing to just kind of throw in there. It's like, what are they talking about? Again, this is reporting something that happened. It's not inventing some awesome heroic story of the amazing thing and all these kind of legendary facts. It's every day. Going to anoint the body for burial. They're having a conversation. Oh, wait. Dang it. There's a giant stone. Who is going to roll away the stone from us for the instant of the tomb? We're already on our way. We got our spices. We're going to go, we're going to go anoint Jesus' body for burial and... They're surprised. Wait a second. How are we going to get this stone out of the way? So, note that humanity. Nothing mythical and extraordinary yet. A normal conversation between women about how the stone will be moved for them to get in. Worries, anxiety spoken. Everything that's been going on. The grief. And that's what they are talking about. It's kind of thinking in a very just ordinary way. It's like you go to the store and you forget your wallet, your purse, whatever at home. Oh, we we forgot it. So this is again just an an anxiety being being spoken. Everyday forgetfulness. Here is another commentator. The women's concern about the stone, which Mark underlines with the comment, though any stone sufficient to steal a tomb entrance would probably have been beyond the strength of three women, adds an almost humorous, homely touch to the scene. They had made their other preparations, but had forgotten this elementary obstacle. Rather than arranging with Joseph's servants to come back with him, they were now trusting to luck that someone would be around to help. But from the dramatic point of view, their anxiety is as important as the foil to their discovery that the problem was already solved. Was already solved. Looking up, verse 4, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. So point five, we have access opened. Access opened. The worries have been dealt with. They have a way in the tomb. The very large, again, that's, what, that's how they say it, this is mega. It's like that Greek word mega. A mega obstacle has been removed. Did they remove it? No. One of their big obstacles for that day to go and anoint the body of Jesus, the big obstacle in the way, it's gone. Not something that they did, but again, something that someone else has done. It is removed. Something alarming has happened. They discover that an even greater human obstacle has been conquered. Kathy Keller She says that the stone was not rolled away because Jesus needed help getting out, but for the women, for us to get in. So we don't need a picture. Jesus kind of wakes up in super strength and just kind of pushes pushes the stone away. This is about them. This is about them. He didn't need help getting out. He had just conquered death. But this is for the women, for us to get in. The obstacle has been removed. Sixth point. Notice the alarming man. The alarming man with an even more alarming message. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Look at it. 
see it? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so we know that this is not just a man. We know from other accounts that this is an angel. We even know from this account, even with the clothed in white, references like to the transfiguration when Jesus was white. This picture of something supernatural has happened here. This is a, a supernatural person in the tomb. And what is an angel? Angel is just a messenger. Angel's a messenger. Given some news. Hey, here I am. Didn't expect me, did you? Clothed in white. Hanging out in the tomb. Why? He's waiting for them. He's waiting for the witnesses to come. To give them a message. And I love this. You've got to remember, good news begins. What does the news begin with? Do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid. We've talked about this before. That command happens over and over again in the Bible. Hey, humanity. Hey, human beings. Hey, men and women. Do not be afraid. What happens at Christmas? The angels talk about, don't be afraid. We've got good tidings of great joy. There's a Savior born. What do we have here at the resurrection? Hey, hold on. Don't, don't be alarmed. Like, what do you think I'm going to be? Good news begins with do not be afraid. The gospel, the message of good news, glad tidings begins with goodness. Don't be afraid. We have from this of what he says, and we're going to get into what he says. But I also first want you to notice too that they see this man here with an alarming message and they too become messengers with an alarming message. So the women have to go tell everybody this alarming message that Jesus is alive. And that in that society would have been alarming because it's women. Here's Josephus, a first century Roman Jewish historian. Josephus, this is what he says, talking about witnesses. But let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at the least, and those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives. So he's saying, hey, how do you prove something or how do you give evidence in a particular culture? Well, you don't just have one witness. You've got to have more. They should have good lives. Their testimony, these should be believable people. He goes on and says, But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. That wouldn't fly on Twitter today. <laughs> Nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. So that's Josephus, a first century historian, talking about what the testimony of women would have meant at that particular time. Again, all of these to show this story is not an invention. This is not the way you make up legendary, heroic stories of what happens of people coming back to life. At that time, you would not invent a story and give women as the messengers and the witnesses of the great story that happened, the miracle that occurred. Here's Dr. Michael Lacona in The Resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach. This is what he said. The main argument posited, you know, academics, they always got to use these terms. The main argument posited for the historicity of the appearance to the women and the empty tomb, for that matter, is that the early Christians would not have invented the, st would not have invented the story since the low view of women in first century Mediterranean society would raise problems of credibility. Bacham provides evidence, that's another scholar, that in Greco-Roman world, educated men regarded women as gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasy and excessive in religious practices. A number of Jewish sources indicating the low view of women in Jewish culture may likewise be cited, although those from the Talmud are admittedly later. We may also note Luke 24.11. He goes on. Precisely because of the low view of women in antiquity, Many see the appearance to the women and to Mary Magdalene especially. Again, I'm quoting him. Then I kind of threw in there demon-possessed woman, mentally ill woman, to use our phraseology. He's going to appear to Mary Magdalene. This is going to be the one that's going to carry the witness. Okay, back to him. 
Many see the appearance to the women and to Mary Magdalene especially as historical given the criterion of embarrassment. Like you don't invent this stuff. It seems unlikely that the evangelists, especially Mark, that's probably the earliest gospel, would either invent or adjust existing testimonies to make the women the first witnesses of the risen Jesus if that's not what was remembered in the earliest traditions. Why fabricate a report of Jesus' resurrection that already would have been difficult for many to believe and compound that difficulty by adding women as the first witnesses? End quote. So again, what's the expectation of the women? They're going to bury somebody dead. That's the expectation. What's the broader expectation of Jewish society, of Jewish thinking? Is not that one person is going to get alive from death, but that that's going to happen way in the future. So it's not even on that radar. And then the women are the ones that are going to carry the news. This is not a made-up story. This is not how you make up stories then. So, an alarming messenger, this man clothed in white, in the tomb. More alarming messengers in that society. Women bearing the good news of the gospel of the resurrected Messiah. So let's look at what he says. And in this we see the good news of the gospel, of the content of what the gospel is. The gospel is an announcement that something has happened. Namely, Jesus is alive. Look, he's. this happened. This actually happened. We're not just repeating a nice bedtime story for the children. Okay, this happened. An angel says, hey, see, look. That's where he laid them. Look at it. The evidence, he is not there. He's saying, hey, he was dead. He was dead. He's saying he is alive. He was crucified. This is Jesus. He has risen. He is not here. He's giving historical facts, historical events. We're not a philosophy. We're not a new way of life. We're not one of many different ideas of how to get right with God or just walk through life in a good way. This is based on historical events. We are saying God has done something in human history that it has happened. We have to get the happenedness of the Gospel. He was crucified. He has risen. He is alive. This is bodily, physical resurrection. In their society too, it would have been an affirmation of creation's goodness. That the body is good. God made the body good. Death is defeated. This is a great reminder of the goodness of the body. In that culture, there would have been a lot of like, you've got to go into the spiritual realm. We've been talking about that in as we've gone through the Corinthians. With cool philosophies or kind of ignore the body or the body's kind of bad and ugly and that's not Christianity. It hinges on a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it happened. He was crucified. He has risen. And the Gospel is an announcement that above average sinners are forgiven. Okay, we got a bunch of average people at the tomb doing average things. But you know what the good news is? Above average sinners are forgiven. I love what he says. Just a little, I love how the Bible does this. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Oh, you just had to throw that in there. And and Peter. And Peter. Why and Peter? What do we know about Peter? What has happened in this story about Peter? Notice Peter is highlighted. Jesus saves Christ deniers. He saves them. He just did this like right before, a few days ago. Don't you love that? Have you ever like commit a sin? Small, big, medium, and it's like, well, you're going to wait a year, two years, three years to kind of feel better about yourself or get the shame removed or whatever. This shows us that God saves sinners in the sin. He doesn't wait. That's the good news of the Gospel. He saves you. He calls you to say, hey, yes, you're a sinner. You're stuck. You're enslaved. All of us are above average sinners. And God comes to us in the mess and rescues us to forgive us. Christ died 
for the ungodly. Ungodly people. That's who God is after. He's after Peter's. He's after above average sinners. Let's just rehearse that part of the story again in chapter 14, verse 26 to 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. So he's not just a sinner. He's an arrogant sinner. I'm not going to do that. There's no way that I'm going to get away from you. I'm going to be with you the whole time. Jesus says to him, truly. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Okay, arrogant, double down pride, above average sinner. Later. 66 of chapter 14. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls... The servant girls come up. and Peter doesn't even have enough arrogance and pride to admit it. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you, were, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out in the gateway and the rooster crowed. You ever get caught with something like, oh, oh I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I just got you. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And commentators talk about how this is like, I will be damned that I am with that man. Okay, so everything about this. This is the kind of sinner that we're dealing with here. Sounds familiar. Sounds like sinners. Sounds like all of us, my friend. That's the kind of people that this angelic messenger is saying, hey, you know what? Go tell Peter. All his disciples and Peter. Go tell them all. Tell the world. Sinners are forgiven. Jesus is alive. Listen to this. It's from one author. Kind of rehearsing John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. We may love to sing the tune to John Newton's hymn, but in our heart of hearts we find its words a little too 18th century for our sensibilities, a bit overwrought for our 20th century tastes. This was written a while ago. Why? Because our minds are caught over two very different barrels. On the one hand, we spend our lives trying to convince ourselves that we're nice people, not blameworthy characters, and certainly not the dead ducks that Scripture tells us we are. Liturgically, of course, we admit that we're sinners. And this person is actually talking to pastors. But when the time comes that we've done something undeniably and above all, unconcealably rotten, What do we do? We go into a paroxysm of guilt over it. Or if we have the chutzpah to avoid that trap, we walk the other way and psychologize it into a sickness, thus disclaiming personal ownership to the very death in which we are saved. We finagle ourselves into thinking we're the victims of our failures, not the perpetrators of them. But since even victims can't shake the notion of guilt entirely, we keep on walking the other way till we find somebody else to blame. We resort to the new fashionable device of confronting the parents or whoever who victimized us. Thus, we arrive at the ultimate deprivation. We rob ourselves of the ability to celebrate the grace that meets us in our sins, not after them. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not just when and if we get around to repenting, John Newton rejoiced over the lostness in which he met grace. We think it would have been healthier for all of us if he would have gotten off the wretchedness kick and revved up the power of positive blaming. He goes on one last few sentences. Jesus came to raise the dead, not to repair the repairable, correct the correctable, or improve the improvable, just to raise the dead and nobody but the dead. Nothing is all He needs for anything. 
So the good news is that Christ came to save sinners. And He didn't just say it with His mouth. He didn't just say, I forgive you to the one that He healed. He went and He did it. He entered death. He entered the punishment for sin and rose again, victory, enthroned as King that He has forgiven sinners. So that's the news He's telling the women to go and spread. Spread that announcement. It's done. We also have more Gospel here. An announcement that Jesus has been coronated as King. That He goes before us. That He goes before us. In verse 7, But go, tell His disciples and Peter that He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him just as He told you. And this is not something that I caught. But I thought this was interesting. Here's another scholar. The announcement that He is going ahead of you is as important as the word that He is not here. The verb used here does not simply mean that Jesus has gone on ahead of His disciples. Thucydides, an Athenian historian of war between Sparta and Athens several hundred years before Jesus, uses the verb for leading troops forward. And Polybius, a later Greek historian just a few hundred years before Jesus, uses it for a commander making an advance. So that's the language. That this Jesus who is risen, He has authority. That He has gone before you. He's calling you to die. Right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. He's saying, pick up your cross. He's saying, you've got to die to everything within yourself. And you throw yourself upon me by faith. But He's saying, I went into death and I destroyed it. And I am now resurrected, leading you out with all authority as King of kings and Lord of lords. That this is a royal announcement. That He has overthrown all of the powers that stand against us. He's removed all all of the obstacles as King. He is authoritative. He has gone before us. That is good news. Lastly, an experience of astonishment at what God has done. Look at that last verse. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Don't get hung up on they said nothing to anyone. We know from the other Gospel accounts that they told the disciples like they were told to do. In fact, some think that this may have just been a, hey, you're not going to go say this to everybody, but you are going to go say to the ones you were supposed to say it to, which were the disciples, like He had said and sent them on. But just notice this experience. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling. They're shaking. It's like when something big happens. It could be a traumatic event, something sad, something extreme. It could be something exciting. You start to shake. They're trembling. A miracle has happened. And they are astonished, had seized them. This was not what they were expecting. He's alive. He's gone. Wow, look in there. He's not there. It's this weird guy in white saying, go tell this stuff. They're amazed. And we've seen this throughout Mark. You know what happens a lot when Jesus shows up and does stuff? People get afraid. When he starts walking on water and doing things that only God does, people get afraid. Usually, he says, don't go tell anybody. Remember how that's happened a lot in Mark? Well, what's happening here? Go tell people. Go tell people. And so this is kind of an experience of what they call a theopony, a divine manifestation. This fear that happens, this, whoa, who is this man? Who is this king? Wow, is this really the Messiah? He's alive. We've seen that all through the Gospels. They are astonished, flabbergasted at what Christ has done besides themselves. I think one of these words talks about that, that, that in the Greek it's as if bewildered, astonished, standing outside of oneself, completely blown away. The same kind of thing that happened in Mark 5.42. You know when that was? Another resurrection. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. At the end of 542, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Same word. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. See, there it is. They're, they're, they're astonished, shocked. Well, God is in our midst. Who is? Wow, isn't this the Messiah? Just amazed. A theophany. Something divine has happened. He says, 
No one should know this. Here, it's flipped. He's alive. Go tell. Go tell the news. Jesus is alive. And so, the resurrection has come. The end has come. Say, what do you mean by the end? Well, the future has come. The resurrection has began. The age that they were expecting that that just everybody was going to get raised, the hope of Israel. But no, this actually came into the present. It came into the now. That's why we have phrases like last days. It isn't for scary rapture movies. Last days is about the end has begun. Jesus is alive. The first fruits, the new creation has come. And it is coming. And one day it's going to come in its fullness. But it's already started. Jesus is alive. He's changed everything. We can have hope no matter what is going on in your life. You can have hope. You're facing death. You're dealing with sin, dealing with sickness, dealing with suffering. Whatever it is, the good news is Jesus is alive from the dead. And He is King. What do you have to do? Trust Him. Empty hands of faith. Receive what He has done. Receive the, the wine, the juice, the, the bread, the body. It's Receive it. Believe it. He's accomplished it. It's all done. That's the news we celebrate. God has changed everything. Jesus is alive. We can have hope. A personal hope. Not an idea. Not a philosophy. News. It has happened. He loves you. He has made a way for you. Trust it. Believe it. Celebrate it. That's what we're going to do as we take the Lord's Supper. Bless 
offering far too small love so amazing so Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. That's good news. <clears throat> 